My plan this afternoon is to pick up on some of the threads that we have been weaving over the course of these several days around the theme of self-compassion and to really pull it apart and look at it more closely. Like, what is self-compassion? Why is it relevant? How is it relevant? And, um, and how is it connected to joy? How is it connected to joy? And it's very closely connected, as you could probably guess, even without knowing too much about it, you could probably guess that higher levels of self-compassion correlate to higher levels of well-being, you know talk some about that in a bit. But first I want to start with um, the opposite of self-compassion, and that is something that I'm guessing you have dealt with since you've been here. I think we've even checked it out, but has anybody here felt, been judgmental towards themselves at some point in the course of the retreat? Okay, just look, take a look, yes. How about judgmental towards other people? Come on, yes, of course. Everybody does it. It's normal. Anybody here felt like they had to do things perfectly? Okay. Not everybody, but a lot of us. So there is this pervasive kind of uh, form of uh, self-judgment, self-recrimination that is a... I see it, it's, it's like, I can use this word, I guess, endemic, but it's, I see it throughout almost everyone that I encounter, having taught for many years, around people who don't come to meditation retreats. You can see it mirrored in the world when people are not feeling so good about themselves. It's likely that it is out of that that they are acting and doing things that are causing harm to others. But there's a profound... Um, levels of self-criticism, self-judgment, self-hatred in um, many people, not all, but many, many people. Actually, I was talking to um, one of my friends and she said, I think the only person who doesn't have self-hatred, who got perfect parenting, is doing really well, is Lin-Manuel Miranda. <laughs> Look how great he is. He's done so many amazing things. So anyway, I don't know. I mean, that's all utter speculation, but anyways. Um, so I have, I, perhaps because I live in Los Angeles, I have collected quotes from incredible actors who think that they're terrible. So I have quotes from Meryl Streep saying, I don't think I can act. From Julianne Moore saying, yeah, every time I get offered a part, I want to offer it to you, Meryl. I have, um, this is one of my favorites from Amy Poehler, who was the, is the comedian who was on SNL Saturday Night Live for a long time. She said, she talks quite a bit about her struggles with self-hatred, self-judgment, and she says, I wish I could tell you that being on television or having a nice picture in a magazine suddenly washes all those thoughts away, but it really doesn't, not for me. I wish I were taller or had leaner hands and a less crazy smile. I don't like my legs especially. I used to have a terrific flat stomach, but now it's kind of blown out after two giant babies used it as a short-term apartment. <laughs> um, so we can make light of it, but there's a lot of the, you know, I don't, I've, I've failed at this. I don't like what I look like. I'm a screw-up. I'm never going to get my life together. I, 
Um, I mean, there's endless iterations of how self-judgment and self-criticism manifests itself. And then sometimes it's towards other people, right? So if it's not towards you, it might be going outward. And then it's like other criticism, but it's also kind of rooted in the same thing. This is um, a story I like. Marie is doing Alice's hair when along comes Tanya, a mutual acquaintance. Tanya has the perfect life, great body, well-behaved children, primo social status. Watching her walk by, Alice admires her beauty, then relaxes into the pleasant sensation of Marie's hands arranging her hair. Marie, by contrast, nearly explodes with jealousy and competitiveness. Her teeth and stomach clench as she watches Tanya flaunt her long limbs, thick hair, and most enviable of all, her hugely swollen rose-red rump. Tanya, Marie, and Alice are baboons <laughs> who share 95% about of our DNA and a lot of our psychological traits. Scientists have found that some baboons, like Marie, are extremely competitive and others, like Alice, are more mellow, less worried about measuring up. The more rank-conscious baboons suffer higher blood pressure, a stress-related condition we associate with driven, competitive humans. So it's just interesting. Actually, there's a lot to say about that, but one of the things to say is that if it's somehow genetically coded within us to be competitive, maybe there's a little bit of a, okay, I'm not the only one, and it's not my fault. It's sort of within my genes, within the human species, to be um, competitive and compare. Um, I'm wondering, I said this earlier, but there's a lot of a struggle. One of the ways it manifests is as perfectionism. I have to be perfect. So one more little poem and then I'll keep, get going. If you can start the day without caffeine, if you can always be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can conquer tension without medical help, relax without the aid of liquor, sleep without the aid of drugs, you're probably a dog. <laughs> okay. So it's real. We can make lots of jokes about it, but it is actually extremely painful when we're struggling with... Um, with self-judgment, self-criticism, and it profoundly impacts our happiness and our ability to find joy in the world when our kind of default mode is to go into, I'm not good enough, I'm lesser than, I have to be perfect, I didn't measure up. And it's interesting, like, where does this come from? You know, and we can speculate it comes from our parental upbringing, it comes from the media comes from our schooling. It comes, I mean, there's so many ways in which it, it enters into our consciousness and, get inter, and gets internalized. And, you know, it manifests, as I talked about, those critical voices. I'm a selfish person. I didn't do it well enough. And really, if someone were as mean to us as we are to ourselves, it would be unacceptable. We probably wouldn't let them do it, right? But we do it to ourselves. 
And then sometimes people say, well, there's a lot of value in self-criticism. Like if I'm critical, it motivates me to improve in my life. What if, if I didn't notice the things that were wrong with me, how would I get things done? Um, some of us think it helps us like uh, motivate us so that we avoid further criticism. It provides an illusion of control. You know, there's a lot of like a lot of things that when we think about self-judgment or being being harsh to ourselves, there's a sense like, okay, well, well, it 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 might lower my expectations. Other people, sorry, it might lower expectations that other people have of me, so I don't disappoint or I don't disappoint myself. Maybe if we're self-critical, it makes people. We think it might make people like us more, make us feel better, make them feel better. Well, the first thing is I want to distinguish self-criticism from self, from, well, let's say from judging from discerning. Okay. Judging is beating yourself up. There's something wrong with me. Why did I do this? I'm a jerk. Discerning is seeing something clearly and making a decision to act differently. So if you sleep through your alarm and you wake up and you say, you say, oh, I just slept through my alarm. I really need to do better tomorrow. That's discerning. That's wise. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you do the same thing and you say, I'm such a jerk. Why did I do it again? I always do that. That's right. That's self-judgment. You see the difference? They're very, very uh, two different qualities. And so we don't want to think, okay, we don't want to improve ourselves. Although sometimes it's wonderful to have periods of time where we completely get rid of self-improvement. So peaceful. So amazing. So I encourage you, if you're one of those self-improvement people, you could have a non-self-improvement week or month or year. So the opposite of all of this is self-compassion. Self-compassion. And I've, um, I sort of have been influenced by the work of, as many of you are familiar with, Kristen Neff and Chris Germer, who, she's a researcher at the University of Texas. He's a psychotherapist. They wrote a book and they've created a program called Mindful Self-Compassion. And self-compassion is different than self-esteem. I'll talk about that in a minute. But self-compassion is not about like, I feel great all the time. Everything is good about me. Self-compassion is this care and appreciation we can have for ourselves, even with the flaws that we have. So the way they define it is saying, being warm and understanding to ourselves when we suffer, fail, or feel inadequate, rather than ignoring our pain or beating ourselves up with self-criticism. Self-compassionate people realize that being imperfect Failing and experiencing life's difficulties is inevitable. So they tend to be gentle with themselves when confronted with painful experiences rather than getting angry when life falls short of set, of set ideals. So it's a very different thing. It's not about like, I'm, I'm wonderful all the time. You know, it's, there was this whole movement. I think it was maybe, I don't know, it started maybe like 20 plus years ago to build up self-esteem in kids right? There were all these programs that they were offering, you know, kids have to have self-esteem. And that was when the whole like, good job, good job, good job. You know, as a parent, when I, when I became a parent, which was 12 years ago, um, they were like, don't ever say good job to your child. (laughs) That's the law. Just letting, I know a few of your 
you're pregnant. So just know that that was what they said 12 years ago. I don't know what they say today. But, um, and it's always, it always changes. Keep that in mind, right? It always changes. So instead of saying, oh, what a beautiful painting you did, you have to say, oh, I noticed you used red and blue, right? You're supposed to describe it. Don't worry, you're going to screw up your kids no matter what you do. <laughs> Just warning you. One of the, Jack Cornfield, the founding teacher of, our, our, of Spirit Rock, um, along with James, also one of the founding teachers, um, said to me when I had my child, he said, start a jar for therapy money. <laughs> So I have like this savings account where I just, oh, I can use it. In any case, this idea of building up your child's self-esteem, good job, good job, oh, you went up the slide, good job, oh, you went down the slide, good job, it didn't really work. Because what happens is the child starts to become dependent upon this outside approval, right? And then the second thing is that it starts to feel false, Oh, good job. Mm, okay, so what? It, you know, I, I just went up the slide. So, um, so, uh, so basically, just go back to self, self-compassion. Self-compassion is not the building of self-esteem. It's this capacity we can have to love and care for ourselves in spite of our flaws. And it has three elements, according to Chris, uh, Kristen Neff and Chris Germer, which are there's an element of mindfulness, an element of the cultivation of loving kindness or kindness or heart-based practices, and the third is the recognition of the shared humanity. I add a fourth, which is also which is a recognition of our inner goodness. And so I want to talk about all of these, all of these different things. But I do want to say a couple of things that if you have self-compassion, when they've done, they've now done quite a bit of research over the last number of years, and they associate uh, self-compassion with greater psychological health and resiliency, it's positively associated with life satisfaction, with emotional intelligence with social connectedness, and people, when they score low on self-compassion, they tend to be people who have higher levels of self-criticism, obviously, but also depression, anxiety, and rumination. So it's also linked with personal initiative and leading a more fulfilling life. And the thing is, I just want to be clear, if you're thinking, oh, no, I don't, I'm very self-judgmental, I, don't, I have very little self-compassion, the good news is that you can cultivate it. This is something that we can work on. I'm going to tell you a whole bunch of ways to do it. That's kind of the purpose of my talk. I've also been interested in the question is like, is everybody, um, does everybody have some compassion? Does it, does it map onto people in different cultures and different places, different communities? And I will say the research here is very, very young. I, when I've looked, I could only find like one research study. It was sort of interesting. And, you know, you have to be careful with one research study because it doesn't generalize to all people or anything. But what this one was, they wanted to look at levels of self-compassion, which they compared to people in Taiwan, the United States, and Thailand. So who do you think had the highest levels of self-compassion of those three countries, Taiwan, U.S., Thailand? 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't know what you all said. <laughs> but anyway, Thai, yes, Thailand is the answer. Um, and they think it's connected to parenting strategies and, um, and the influence of the way that, um, that they parent in those different cultures. Um, what, which one do you think is the lowest? Actually, Taiwan showed up lower. So it's, it's just interesting to think about. I mean, I don't know enough to make any blanket generalizations about the culture, but it seems like, it seems like for those who, when I've offered this to people who do know, they said it made, it made sense to them growing up in a Taiwanese family versus a Thai family versus a U.S. family. But anyway, it's just, it's just interesting and also not to generalize completely. So let's take a couple of the, of the, let's take all of them. We're going to go through the different pieces of self-compassion and really explore how we can cultivate using mindfulness, cultivation of more kindness, shared humanity, and inner goodness. And let's start with the concept of how we bring mindfulness to, self, to self-judgment. So mindfulness in one way is very helpful just as a baseline, having a daily practice where we come back to ourselves again and again, and we learn the skills of cultivating even-mindedness, balance, how do we sit with difficult emotions. Like just in general, there is an, if you practice mindfulness, people, there is a, there is usually a positive um, outcome of more self-compassion. Or just more kindness. Yeah, well, really, kindness to self. And this is interesting because um, I was involved with a study at UCLA where we, and we've, we're still in the middle of it, but we've been teaching mindfulness to younger breast cancer survivors. So this is women under 50 who have an enormous amount of stress. They've survived cancer, but now they have to live life and with always the, you know, the fear in the back of their mind of a recurrence, plus they're younger, so they often have you know, families and jobs, and they're really busy. So we were teaching a six-week mindfulness program, our program called MAPS, Mindful Awareness Practices. And, um, and what we found was that the, that the levels during the course of the six weeks, the levels of anxiety, depression, stress, they all decreased, which was great news. But then we did a follow-up, and three months later... It had kind of gone back up, which is always really disappointing. This is the kind of stuff the scientists don't want to say because <laughs> when it doesn't work out, right, they always like change it, but they don't change it. They don't necessarily reveal the negative, but good scientists do. And our scientists 100% did that. What we did find was in, what did all, went, went up was levels of self-compassion just by learning the mindfulness practice. And you know how for the days we've been saying to you, be kind to yourself, be kind to yourself, that builds inside you. And it just begins to spontaneously cultivate more self-compassion. And three months later with this study, that self-compassion stayed. So that's very, it's very encouraging to think about how people's Thoughts and hearts and minds can be transformed through these simple practices, this practice of mindfulness and compassion. So how specifically can we use mindfulness to work with our um, difficult thoughts and emotions, especially the ones where we judge and compare and, and don't like ourselves? So there's lots of... there's. We've been already talking about it. We've been talking some about how to work with difficult feelings as they arise. Mindfulness is so helpful for working with thoughts. Mindfulness is like, it's like 
It's my go-to. It's what I do when I'm having difficult thoughts or difficult emotions. And I want to do an, a, an analogy. And I have to, I just want to say, James, I think like 25 years ago, you taught me this analogy, which I have now taught for the next many decades, which is our thoughts are like trains. So we get on a train and we just go down the track 20 miles. And you're just, you know what that's like. You're sitting here and you're having a thought. It's leading to the next one. Oh, what's for dinner? Is it going to be as good as the lunch today? Man, that Indian food was incredible. I love Indian food. When I get home, I'm going to go to that Indian restaurant that's new, blah, blah, right? Our thoughts are like trains. We get on the train and the next thing we know, we are 20 miles down the track. And so we, at that point, can realize we're on the train and we can get off the train. Or we can never get on the train in the first place. We can stay at the platform and the thought arises and the train goes and we don't have to get on that train. So this is a very helpful um, way of thinking, noticing, because you've seen, you've had a lot of thought trains since you've been here, right? And sometimes you get on, a lot of times you get on, but sometimes you get on, you get off. Sometimes you notice you're a train and you don't even get on it, which is really exciting when that happens. Especially when it's the train of, I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy, that person is a better meditator than I am, look how well they're sitting. I can tell because of the way they place their shoes in the perfect place, they're a better meditator. You know, the stories that our head create, that are created in our mind is so... Can we use mindfulness to get off the train and to say, all right, there's a thought, judging, judging, judging. You can start counting those judgments. And if you get up to like judging 600, it's only 10 in the morning. You start to see like the pervasive nature of this. Years ago, I taught the exercise of counting your judgments to a bunch of young girls I was working with, like uh, middle school age. And I didn't see them for a month, and they came back a month later, and I had forgotten I'd given the exercise. And this woman walked up to me and said, 712. And I was like, 712 what? And she said, judgments. Well, it turned out she had gone to school and not only counted her judgments, but all the other kids' judgments. <laughs> so anytime someone would judge something, she'd go, judgment 71, judgment. <laughs> so, but what does it do? What does it do when we start to notice the pervasive nature, the conditioned habitual nature of our thinking, we begin to get a little bit of awareness and then possibility for letting go possibility for seeing for not getting on the train um, another analogy is like when you think about cartoons um, and they often have a bubble like a thought bubble coming out of someone's head and so we take the pin of mindfulness and we prick the bubble and it just disappears now sometimes that happens sometimes that does ha doesn't happen sometimes it's like a really hard bubble you're not going to prick that thing right but our that mindfulness, the capacity to be aware can be very, very uh, just profound in any moment that we can see we are lost on these thought, in these thought bubbles. We can see that we're on the train. We can take a moment and go, oh, judging, judging, there it is. And you don't say judging like judging. That would be judging, judging, right? <laughs> you don't want to do that. 
you want to ju- you want to say it with kindness because you're compassionate. You realize like everybody except Lynn Manuel Miranda is dealing with this, right? Everybody is dealing with this. So we can count thought. We can we can label our thoughts. And and by the way, it doesn't have to be just a judging thought. Any difficult thought you can label with specificity. Worrying. Um, catastrophizing, uh, giving it a label or giving the emotions. Remember when Deborah talked about rain, there's this recognition. We can recognize, oh, grief, sadness. It's very helpful for the mind to label, to notice. And then what's also helpful is that, uh, um, is the I that Deborah talked about investigating in our bodies. What is happening? So if we have a repetitive thought, judging, 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 you know, we're just judging, we can't stop judging or some other kind of negative thought. If we can notice it and then check into my body, what am I feeling? Oh gosh, there's like an anxiety thing going on. My heart's racing. My stomach is clenched. My jaw is tight. Sometimes there's a there's something going on in our body or an emotion that's fueling the thought. So if you have a very pervasive thought, I encourage you to check inside what's happening in my body. It might be very helpful. Sometimes when you notice that you're judging and you become mindful of the judging thought, it's helpful to find something that doesn't feel connected to the judging inside you, almost like a place of soothing, a place of ease, a place of well-being. So we don't always have this, but sometimes let's say we're having a lot of difficult feelings, we're judging, but when we check into our feet or hands, there is ease. So I just encourage you right in this moment, just feel your hands it is not going to be the same for everybody, but notice your hands. They might not feel great, but they might feel tingly, warm, soft. Or your feet, you can see what's happening in your feet. What do they feel like? Or you can sense, is there another part of my body which feels at ease? And if there's nothing in your body... And you were to open, if your eyes are closed, but let's say you open your eyes and like, look out the window. What is beautiful to you out the window? Or maybe one of the statues up here or something. Just look and notice and see what that's like. Notice what you're feeling in your body as you do this. Okay. So this practice of um, sometimes called finding a resource in our body, and I think it's just like a simple practice of connecting with what is soothing, what is easeful, what is, is really helpful. And it's actually a practice that I sometimes do without, even when I'm not feeling bad, <laughs> when I'm feeling good. And I just like, oh, it feels so pleasant as I just connect with my legs and the sense of the earth below me is really helpful. And I feel like in these times where we're so many of us are on alert and in anxiety and there, it's like a little joy practice of connecting with something either internal or external. And what I could have said, which I didn't say is you can think about something that, that makes you happy, like a person or an animal. It's almost like a, it's like a couple of seconds of the metta of the loving kindness or a beach or something. So just to 
divert your attention in a mindful way from what's difficult and then kind of then we can kind of come back into the experience and then of course when you're having difficult thoughts and emotions you um can also um bring kindness to yourself so when deborah mentioned rain recognize accept or allow investigate and the N stands for not identify, which I'll say a little bit more about, but it also can stand for nurture. How do we nurture ourselves in that moment when we're feeling bad? And this is kind of connected to the second point, which I'll get to, but, but just to say that being uh, aware and sensing what's happening is it goes like a long way for working with judgment. One fun tool that you can do is you can add a phrase to a judgmental thought, like the sky is blue. Because the sky is blue, it's, it's, it's neutral, right? But if you notice like, oh my gosh, I'm such a jerk, I slept through the morning bell, the sky is blue. Like it's not, it makes it less of a big deal, right? My friend was meditating at a meditation center and she was out, she was going through a ton of self-judgment. Just like, I hate myself. Why did I do this? I'm the worst meditator. I need to leave. And she saw this little chipmunk and she bent down to reach towards it and it ran away. And she said, I'm such a terrible person. Even the chipmunks hate me. (laughs) And, um, and she went to see her teacher who said, she, he said, how are you doing? She said, I'm doing horribly. I'm such a terrible person, even the chipmunks hate me. And he looked at her and he said, even the chipmunks hate me, the sky is blue. And she got it in that moment. Like there are some thoughts that have this energy to it and some thoughts that really don't. And they're both thoughts. So it's just another way of getting off the train. And um, after she taught me that, for like months and months, I would be, I would say, even the chipmunks hate me, even the chipmunks hate me. And that would crack me up. And then I, anytime I had a judgmental thought and I would stop. And then sometimes even the chipmunks hate me, the sky is blue. You know, you could go on and on. All right. And so last thing I want to say with working with difficult thoughts is that um, when, when you're in the thoughts and emotions, it's almost like you're underwater. It's like, it's hard to see clearly. We don't have we're just lost in it. We believe it. We're really identified. We're really lost in it. But as we bring mindfulness practice to become aware of the thoughts, it's almost like we pop our head out of the water and we can start to see a little bit more clearly. And when we get to that point, we can do something that I call enlisting the wisdom mind. And that's when that part of us that's wise, that we all have, that often gets covered up, can kind of take over and say, is this true? Am I really the worst meditator here? Right? It might, it might question it, or it might say, you'll get through this, honey. You'll be okay. Or this too will pass. Or they're just, and of course, this is for those of you who are familiar with, like, um, cognitive behavioral therapy or, you know, cognitive reframing. This is the, this is that territory, but in a simple way of talking about it is how can we use our wisdom to deal with the difficult thoughts? Um, this is a story where somebody does this. 
A man observed a woman in the grocery store with a three-year-old girl in her basket. As they passed the cookie section, the little girl asked for cookies, and her mother told her no. The little girl immediately began to whine and fuss, and the mother said quietly, Now, Monica, we have just half the aisles left to go through. Don't be upset. It won't be long now. Soon they came to a candy aisle, and the little girl began to shout for candy. When told she couldn't have any, she began to cry. And the mother said, there, there, Monica, don't cry. Only two more aisles to go, and then we'll be checking out. Well, when they got to the checkout stand, the girl started wanting gum. She burst into a terrible tantrum, discovering that she wasn't allowed to have gum. The mother said serenely, Monica, we'll be through this checkout stand in five minutes, and then you can go home and have a nice nap. The man followed them out to the parking lot and stopped the woman to compliment her. I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Monica, he began. The mother replied, I'm Monica. <laughs> my, my little girl's name is Tammy. <laughs> so how can we cultivate that wise and loving voice? And, um, and we can. We absolutely can. So it's like we bring, we see ourselves doing this. You know, I can't, I mean, how many times have we all said, oh, that was so stupid. Why did I do that? I'm such a jerk. Ugh. You know, it just happens. It's, a, it's conditioned, right? It's perhaps in our DNA, as that baboon article talked about. But, but we can notice it. And over time, we have more lightness we take it less personally, as Deborah was saying. We notice, oh, okay, there's a thought arising. It's a mean thought. Oh, interesting, judging thought. Hi, yeah, makes my stomach a little tight. Okay, see ya. Right, it just comes, it moves through us. As she was saying, like weather, weather systems, weather patterns moving through us. So the next one, the next of this set of ways of cultivating self-compassion is this concept of shared humanity. And shared humanity is, um, it's exactly what it appears, right? There's, there's, typically when we're feeling bad about ourselves, we feel like we're the only one. I'm the only one who's ever done such and such, um, it's just, it, it's like this, this pervasive kind of isolation that, that is connected to the way we judge ourselves. And what can really help is when we can remember that all humans experience or most humans experience what we experience, that it's, I'm not the only one, that it's not happening to me alone. And there are even practices where we kind of, when we're having a hard time, where we contemplate other people who are having that same hard time in the moment. And that can open up the heart of compassion. And there's a famous story in the Buddhist teachings about a, a woman named Kisa Gotami, who was the wife of a, a wealthy man. And it's one of the more famous stories in, in Buddhism. And she lost her only child. And she became desperate and, you know, just absolutely out of her mind. And she started going around trying to get the child to come back to life. And she went up to the Buddha and she said, um, 
help me bring the child back to life. I've heard you have these incredible powers. You're this amazing being. And the Buddha said he would bring the child back to life if she could find a mustard seed from a family where no one has died. So then she started knocking on all these doors, asking for a mustard seed from a family where no one had died. And what did she discover? That there was none. I mean, every, everyone had experienced loss. And I tell this story, as I'm telling this story, I'm thinking, gosh, telling this story in light of the pandemic, where there has been so much loss, it's kind of intense. I didn't really realize that as I was planning to tell this story. I just want to acknowledge there's been a huge amount of loss within this room and within the, you know, 8 billion people on our planet. And so maybe just taking a moment to know that this is, like with Kisa Gotami, this is part of the human condition. And we share this, this, um, this time of great tragedy. And we can breathe and know that we are not the only ones. And when she, what happened with her is when she discovered that, she kind of woke up and got enlightened or something happened to her. She, it was like this, there was, it was the through the suffering that she woke up to a state of great freedom when she realized that all human beings suffer in the same way. And so there's something very profound, as Deborah was saying a lot about last night, in how we can turn our grief into freedom not into like things are good because they're not good, but where does it become a great teacher for us? And where does it become something where, where we can ask? It's not about what happens to us, but how we relate to what happens to us. So we can relate to difficulties in life with blaming and feeling a victim and self-hatred and all sorts of difficult things. Or we can relate to hard things in life with uh, balance and opening our eyes more and compassion and wisdom and equanimity. So this is all possible, and it is one of the profound teachings of this path, that we can have a difficult experience and suddenly... Oh, yeah, I am suffering, but I'm not the only one. And now I'm feeling the compassion for like the thousands of people who are having knee knee pain, the hundreds of thousands of people who are having knee pain. And then that, of course, transfers out into everything in life. So I want to, because we've been sitting for a while, I want to just do a quick exercise about um, shared humanity because I want, this is completely unscientific, but I want to prove my point. So I'm going to ask you to stand up just want to get a little exercise. If, wait, only stand up if this statement is true. Stand up if you have had, and, uh, and if for some reason you cannot stand up, you can lift your arm up high so we know that you're part of as well. Um, stand up if you have had a hard time at some point on this retreat. All right. So just take a look around. Okay. And then... Sit back down. Okay, so that's pretty much, I would say, 90% of people in the room. Stand up if you've ever done something stupid. 
Okay, look around. Ready? You're going to get some exercise. Down. Stand up if you've ever failed at something that was important to you. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to just stay standing? (laughs) All right. Stay standing if, or you can go back down, depending on how much exercise you want, or hand raise or hand down, if you've ever looked in the mirror and not liked what you saw. Yeah. Stand up if you've ever compared yourself to others. Stand up or hands up if you've ever thought other people were clever or more talented than you are. Stand up if you, or hands up if you've ever hurt someone you love, been hurt by someone you love, felt alone. Okay, stay standing for a minute and look around. And I kind of want you to like remember this moment in your bones. Like, I am not the only one. And just hold, just, and as you're looking also, we can send out a bit of compassion to each other. Just, yeah, I feel you. I get it. May your suffering be alleviated. May I care about your suffering. I care about you. Yeah, just feeling what maybe imagining that it's coming at you right now, the kindness and compassion, and you are not the only one. Just taking that in for a pause. Okay, back down. So... I still have, I think I can do it. I still have two more components. The next component of self-compassion is the component of the cultivation of self-directed kindness. That by practicing, that practice that we've done, we did last night and the night before, specifically to ourselves, can build up the levels of, it's almost like, it's like we're a, it's like an ocean that's filling within us. Like maybe right now we have a tiny little trickle of kindness and maybe we're a person who tends to be really hard on ourselves. But with the heart-based practices, these practices of kindness and the practices of cultivating joy and all these, we start to build up more capacity to love ourselves. I, um, there's just thinking how I want to go from here. Hold on. So for me, I, you know, I dealt quite a bit with self-hatred and self-judgment. And that's one of the reasons that I can, I can talk authoritatively about it because I did these practices. One, I know it really well. And I did a lot of practices to work with the kindness and the kindness towards self and working really, really, you know, persevering around watching those thoughts and not letting myself get on that train or go down that street and working with building up the kind. So I've done, you know, months and months of pra- and years and years of practicing with these kindness practices, sending kindness to myself. Sometimes people say it's like it's too selfish 
if I send kindness, I want to send kindness to all beings. I want to send kindness out into the world. But it's not selfish. One of my favorite quotes um, from, uh, this is so sad because um, it's from Bell Hooks, who the um, black feminist theorist who died in December. And this is, her book is a book called All About Love. So it's sad because she was such a force of nature. When I talked with friends and acquaintances about self-love, I was surprised to see how many of us feel troubled by the notion, as though the very idea implies too much narcissism or selfishness. We all need to rid ourselves once and for all of misguided notions about self-love. We need to stop fearfully equating it with self-centeredness and selfishness. Self-love is the foundation of our loving practice. Without it, our other efforts to love fail. Self-love is the foundation of our loving practice. Without it, other efforts to love fail. And this is said in the Buddhist teachings. You can search the whole world over and find no one more worthy of love than yourself. So if there's a voice saying, oh yeah, this sounds like too, like I can't do this, it's, it's selfish. No, no, we have to fill ourselves up so that we can be there for everyone else. And I know for myself, it's just, it's been years of feeling, you, you know, you, it's like things, uh, it's like peeling the onion. You know, like there's areas where I build up the self-love and there's like, oh my gosh, there's so much more love here more compassion and it kind of builds on itself like it grows and grows and then you come into new areas in your life where you're like "Uh oh I don't have any self-compassion here at all like when I first had my baby I was like what do I do Ah, no operating instructions right and then I learned to be more compassionate with myself recently I've been practicing with um like within the last couple years this question of what what do I want? What do I want? You know, not to, yes, as Deborah so beautifully spoke about, from the Buddhist perspective, when we get attached to our desires, there is suffering. But so many of us also like ignore our desires and want to serve everybody else. And I was really, I was, I am, I was, have been one of those people. Like it's so easy to give, it's so less easy to take. And so one of the practices that someone assigned me was to every morning wake up and write down 10 things that um, I want. And the first morning I was like, wait, uh, what, wait, what? I don't know. So then I was like, oh, okay, I want to work less. I got to one. <laughs> and then the next day I had like maybe two or three. I want, I want to go to the beach. That was about it. And so um, after a couple of weeks of getting really frustrated and kind of not, not knowing, I began to do some loving kindness practice for myself here. And I contacted this kind of part of me that, that was like it didn't feel worthy of wanting. Like it wasn't okay to have my own, to want joy. You know, this whole thing. It was like, no, you can have this much joy, but you can't have this much joy. Like, that's not okay. You can have joy if it helps others. You can have joy if it serves your family. You can, you know, you can have joy if you 
if you're, you know, perfect about it. But so I began to do a lot of loving kindness, like weeks and weeks of it out towards myself. And I also began to get really interested in my, what my body was saying and feeling. And I suddenly stumbled accidentally on a practice where I started asking the parts of my body what they wanted. And I asked my foot, all right, what do you want? And the image that came into my mind was like squishing your foot in mud. And then I went up my leg and it was like, what do you want? It was like, I want to dance. Oh, okay. And then I asked my hands and I got, I got, I want to be painting. Like all these things started coming to me by checking in. And I'm not going to tell you what else I got because it's none of your business, but, (laughs) but there was this tuning in, like, as I began to say, it's okay to take off the prohibition to feel joy, this prohibition to listen to these desires, not to get attached to these desires, but as I began to take off the prohibitions, all this emerged. And as it emerged, and as I, day after day writing, then I started doing those things. I started, I just learned, I've been taking flamenco classes, it's wild. I've never in a million years thought I would do that. But it was like something, it was from listening and caring and trusting that this is what I needed. And this is a very loving act to give myself space and kindness and to listen in deeply to my own desires. Um, so... A little bit more to say. Hold on, there's something I was going to say. Can't remember it, but I'm going to read you a poem instead. And this poem is called Imperfection. I am falling in love with my imperfections. The way I never get the sink really clean, forget to check my oil, lose my car in parking lots, miss appointments I've written down, I'm I'm just a little late. I'm learning to love the small bumps on my face, the big bump on my nose, the hairless scalp, chip nail polish, toes that overlap. Learning to love the open-ended mystery of not knowing why. I'm learning to fail, to make lists, fail to use my time wisely, fail to read the books I should, Instead, I practice inconsistency, irrationality, forgetfulness. Probably I should hang my clothes neatly in the closet, all the shirts together, then the pants, send Christmas cards, or better yet, a letter telling of my perfect family. But I'd rather waste time now, listening to the rain, or lying underneath my cat, learning to purr. Such a good poem. I think... I forgot her name. I forgot to write it here. I think it's Elizabeth Carlson, but I can post that for you all if you want it. I'll get it. So we do this combination of practices. We do the mindfulness to work with as a baseline and then to just to work with the difficult thoughts. We do the loving kindness practice to build up this like ocean of love within us. 
And then um, we recognize the shared humanity. We're not the only one. And then the last thing is, it's not, um, it's just the way that I teach it. It's different than with um, the Kristen F. Chris Germer formulation, but it's the recognition of our inner goodness. This innate capacity for joy and love, which is who we are. Like this is it. This is, the, we talked about. We talked about. I think Deborah was saying how it gets covered up. Like we don't see that. But perhaps while you're here, you have had these glimmers, these moments of like peace or ease, or slight joy or a lot of joy. Like this is when we're experiencing that. We are touching into the profound, luminous qualities of our own heart. We are made for joy. You know, this is who we are. We're so much greater. We are not our fear. We are not our grief. We are not our anger. We are not our jealousy. You are so much more than that. And this practice is a practice of uncovering this this well of well-being that is within us. And it's accessible. It's always here. We just need to kind of cool ourselves down a bit and open up our hearts and look clearly and do these practices. And it takes work and time. But as we do, there's an opening to something that is so much more profound than we ever dreamed possible. And so this, once we do that, it's not like you have to, we have to keep, keep like replenishing the well. But you know deep in your bones that you are completely worthy. There, nothing is wrong with you and nothing has ever been wrong with you. And nothing ever will be wrong with you. Who you are as you are is perfect. Perfectly imperfect. Imperfectly perfect. It's who you are. And we bow to that, all of us. And that's, that's the gift that we get when we, get to, when we teach here. Is we, bow, we get to see your incredible beauty. So let's just take a moment to pause and take a breath and just feel what's happening inside ourselves and (sighs) and just noticing how I'm feeling at the end of this and just Letting yourself be exactly where you are. And maybe there is a time in your life when you remember kind of tapping into this goodness, a time of um, you know, being out in nature. You just felt this sense of peace and coming home to yourself.
or maybe some moment on the retreat so far where there was like a great joy just bubbling through or a subtle joy. Or when you were with your dog or cat or other pet or just something that remember you remember that brought you a sense of joy, goodness. And let yourself feel it. Just let yourself feel it. It was Walt Whitman who said, I'm larger and better than I thought. I did not think I held so much goodness. So thank you for your attention. I'm not a big bower, but a bow if you want. <laughs> um, so maybe we'll turn off the um, recording. Thanks. And then I want to segue into a self-compassion exercise. But I first want you to um, to just get yourself, get a little motion. I'm wondering, Evelyn, would you be open to just taking the mic and having them move for like three or four minutes in some fun way? And if you're absolutely desperate to go to the bathroom, go. But if you can handle it another 30 minutes, that would be great. Um, You should make it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.